Hello, and welcome to the Blue Mountain Center podcast. I'm Zohar, and I'm joined by... Luke. And uh, Luke, we just got back from a little vacation. We went to Montreal, and it was my first time, not only my first time in Montreal, but it was my first time in the country of Canada. You didn't tell me that. I didn't even know that. You played really? it cool. Like, you, this, you, oh, yeah, I do this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I do this all the time. Crossing the border is yeah. my specialty. Because I feel like I was naturally more, not that we were doing anything improper whatsoever, but I feel like I was the more nervous of the two of us crossing the border. I don't know if I gave you that impression. No, I didn't. It's just a big, like, event, you know? Mm-hmm. It's hard to just act like it's an everyday thing, you know? Like, it's just a formality. What if what if we're unknowingly committing some grave infraction, you know? Yeah, I guess I was just pretty certain that we were not committing any infractions. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did cross the border, which is pretty close to here. It's about two hours away. Mm-hmm. Uh, we drove through Plattsburgh, and we passed Anamora on the way, mm-hmm. which is where the prisoners escaped from. Yeah. Um, and we did this all in my car, which is a 1992 Honda Accord with yeah. uh, ample rust stains and... Great handling. Great handling. handles very great. And I, Maryland license plates. So yeah. w- suspicious, to say the least. Is that just people... If you drove up from Maryland, that's not necessarily suspicious. How is that any more suspicious than coming from New York? Oh, you drove a longer distance. That's a good point, Luke. I think you've convinced me. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I said to the border guard. I said, why would that make us suspicious? Anyways, we got into Canada really quickly. Um, And then we had, I thought we had a pretty fun time in Canada, in Montreal specifically. Um, you said that like I I didn't have a good time. Like I thought that <laughs> we had a good time. The man across from me, however, I enjoyed myself too. That's um, good. Well, we haven't. I we've actually talked quite a bit about it, so I know you had a good time. But for the sake of entertainment, we can pretend this is the first time we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I know. I guess anyone who's been to basically any major city at this point knows that bike share programs are great. And I guess, I don't know, actually, the percentage of cities that have bike share programs. But Montreal's is pretty great. Um, Yeah, I've been really intimidated by bike share programs in the past. And this one was really easy to use. I give it two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. And it didn't break the bank, right? No, super cheap. $12 Canadian dollars uh, for 72 hours. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. That was great. Pick it up anywhere if you don't know how bike share programs work. Uh, there's little there's place bike racks all over the city that have these big like destroy proof bikes that you swipe your credit card and then you can take one out for 30 minutes and then ride it all over the city and drop it off at another one of these portals um, within that time frame. Did you have a favorite part of the trip? The bikes. Yeah. <laughs> riding riding the bike all over the city. That was really fun. Yeah, I in specific I'm going to say riding the bikes Across, like along the river, yeah, was super great, and especially at night when it was dark and breezy, and there was the river right there, and it was kind of like you were in a city, but also nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fun, pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, anyways, who'd you talk to this week, Luke? I talked to Jonathan Matthew Smucker. Uh, he is a longtime organizer who has worked with groups like 
Beautiful Trouble. Maybe you've heard of them. They've um, been here. They've been here. That's why I've I said them. it that way. <laughs> uh, and Iraq Veterans Against the War, uh, the Ruckus Society, and a whole number of other uh, organizations and groups. Um, he's a sociology PhD student at UC Berkeley. Late in life, he's become more into the academic sphere of things. Late in life? Well, he you know, he's in his <laughs> late 30s, I think he wouldn't mind me saying, but... I just mean that he started organizing at a very young age, as you'll hear in the podcast. So, and he kind of he, he was he went to high school, but barely. And then when he graduated high school, he kind of just jumped right into things. So that's what I meant by that. Um, but he's not old, no. Um, and he's also he's also written a book manuscript while he was here, partly uh, called "Hegemony How to: A Primer for Underdogs Who Want to Win." And we talked about that book as well, which that is not yet published, great. but it's going to be. Jonathan Smucker was also a resident here who was super into ping pong. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else was he into? Ping pong. He was a big uh, worker at night. Night worker. Oh, yeah. Night worker. Oh, and yeah. he swam a lot. He was into jumping into the lake. And he would secretly jump into the lake at night. He would do like midnight dips. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yep. He was fun to have around. He was very helpful. Yes. Sweet guy. Yes. He's a... I was a big fan. All around good guy. We were both big fans, and that's why we had him on. And, um, yeah, I uh, can't wait for you to hear it, Zohar, since I guess you haven't at this point. I'll buckle up. All right, cool. So your book, your new your book that you're working on right now is called Hegemony How To, a primer for underdogs who want to win. And it seems like you've spent the last two or so years working on this book. And I get and it's drawing on about two decades of experience organizing. And we're gonna get into all that stuff, but I guess I wanted to start with since you're working at UC Berkeley or you're studying at UC Berkeley uh, in sociology. Why did you retreat to the ivory tower? <laughs> uh, like what 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 made you go like what made you yeah, yeah. step back and go there? Yeah. Um probably I should be stepping back more than I am. Uh truth be told, I'm still very politically active. Um and um I mean when I say should, I mean uh some of my professors might tell me that I should uh step back more. Um, I'm not on staff anymore of any kind of a, uh, social change organization, but I'm involved in a lot of projects still in terms of being a board member of, uh, the wildfire project, the center for story-based strategy, um, and being involved with things like beautiful trouble and still doing some things through beyond the choir, which is my own mostly dormant vehicle. Um, but why did I go to school? Um, I hadn't done school really my whole life. I flunked out of high school and um, barely graduated with a very low GPA and then dove headlong into social movements and um, learned my organizing skills through it. And over many years, you know, not on my own, it was always collaborative, but started to develop a um, kind of theory of change and, and uh, that I borrowed from here and there and made up things as I went. And started doing more and more training with different organizations, more and more campaign strategy um, 
conversations. Yeah, I wanted to ask about yeah. that because it seems like you started training people pretty early on and like that that was always a component of your work mm -hmm. like was it you always just felt is that just kind of did that come naturally or was that kind of like you you decided that you wanted to be teaching others how to do the work like what what drove that you know it was pretty organic and it was pretty much um not um you know one niche within a social movement that that a lot of people play so um in some of the movements I was part of, we, you know, I, I stepped into a culture of training. I stepped into a culture where, um, the people that you would work with would also train you. Um, you know, like earth first, uh, I was involved with, we would have trainings on things like direct action skills, locking your neck to a crane and doing that as safely as possible. And, um, and PR how to give an interview. And so people would informally train each other, or kind of form semi-formally, you know, right. do workshops in the midst of campaigns. And then, you know, maybe you got trained on it. Maybe you had some experience with it. And then you would co-train with an, another lead trainer um, uh, and kind of get your, your feet wet. Is that the expression? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, um, get some experience with training. And so that's how I did it. And the global justice movement is, you know, starting with, you know, uh, the shutdown in Seattle and whatnot. Um, that's where I really started to develop training skills in a more formalized way and um, got involved with the Ruckus Society and did campaign strategy, direct action trainings and, and messaging training. So it was pretty organic and it wasn't my own invention. I was stepping into a culture of training. Um, but as I developed, I developed my own, I started developing more of my own strategy frameworks and that is what eventually led me to school because I had never read much theory, much Marx and Weber and Durkheim and all the uh, the dead white guy trifecta um, in sociology. Um, and, you know, I, I was eager to do that. I was eager to, to read uh, as I was organizing for years um, I loved reading and I could never find enough time because the work would be so demanding when you're staff or, or a volunteer working full time on campaigns. So I would kind of eat up what I could, but it, it was kind of a building hunger. And so I, you know, in my 30, I had done a year of school when I was 25 at the University of Minnesota um, and loved it, but still felt compelled to be working, organizing full time. Um, but then it kind of built up and then in, uh, in my 30s, I went to Goddard College and finished my undergrad and then just catapulted straight to UC Berkeley for a sociology program. It seems like a good chunk of the book, at least from the proposal that I read, is kind of diagnosing a lot of problems in organizing for social justice. Um, and it's, and I, I kind of picked up on a little theme, like stuck in a story of the righteous few, life of the group, the political identity paradox. A lot of these issues that come with like being in a group and being exclusionary. Can you talk a little bit about kind of, and, and is that true? Like studying these dead, the dead white trifecta, <laughs> as you say, like studying in sociology, does that kind of help you to understand these issues? Um, I guess. So first, yeah. what are the, what are these issues? And then secondly, how do you, how does this all help? That? Yeah. And I'll, I'll back up just a little bit further, even from that in that, um, 
you know, the, the name of the book, the working title at least, Hegemony How To, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It's not, it's not a field manual per se. It's a, it's a book that wrestles and introduces concepts um, that, uh, and dynamics that are difficult for movements to navigate. And, um, and so, you know, it's tongue in cheek, but there is a little bit of a how to component. There is a, what does a popular alignment that's challenging power look like? How do you, how do you make an alignment out of a lot of different fragmented heterogeneous forces with different agendas? How do you find enough common ground to build a political force, um, you know, the kind of political force that's necessary to challenge entrenched power and privilege. And so that's, that's the aim of the book is to get at those questions. But then in kind of the first half of the book, you realize that before you can even get at those questions, there are these patterns and dynamics and traps that we often fall into that can prevent us from even being able to have a conversation about strategy in the first place. And, and here is where I, I do actually think sociology and some social psychology even um, can be helpful because, you know, you get involved in a movement because you want to make change, because uh, you care about a social justice issue and you realize either consciously or intuitively that joining with other people, you're more likely to be able to make a difference. But then in those efforts, um, dynamics, group dynamics kind of become their own force. Um, uh, I call it the life of the group. It kind of takes on its own, um, its own life. And, and that's fine and good. Actually, we get our social needs met in these groups. We find meaning, we find a sense of belonging. We find a sense of purpose that we often lack before we get involved in social movements. Right. And that can be part of what even leads us to social movements. And certainly once you're in a social movement, uh, the willingness to sacrifice time, to take risks, to, um, you know, to, to stay involved at costs, social costs, legal costs, potentially, um, uh, in order to be able to sustain that willingness, unless you're a saint, and there's a few of those here and there, but that's not what movements are made out of, right? You need this sense of belonging, you need this sense of identity. And so it's not a bad thing that the group takes on its own life. Um, but what I call the political identity paradox is that in order to have a social movement in the first place, you need that really strong sense of identity. But the more, the stronger a group's sense of identity, the more cohesion a group's identity has, the more likely the group is to create barriers between itself and other groups it might need to align with in order to really um, make headway on an issue. And so that's the paradox is that you need the identity, but the identity can turn off other groups. You sort of talk, you kind of touched on that in your nation piece that I read, where you talked about the radical critique of the uh, people's climate march. Um, can you retrace that kind of connection really quick? Sure. Yeah. I co-authored that piece with um, my friend and comrade, Michael Primo, um, who I know through Occupy Wall Street. And we worked together on Flood Wall Street too, briefly. I, I came in for a few days for, to help out lend a hand with Flood Wall Street. Um, but, uh, yeah, what, what, what happens, and this is a big part of the, the book as well, is that we often mistake 
critique for political power. So people think that by critiquing something that that, that, that we get we get that confused with wielding political power. Um, and critique is important. It's important to critique, and it's it's important to have even self critique and um, critical conversations within movements about how to improve. What Michael and I wrote in that article, we were pushing back against um, some particular critics of the People's Climate March that um, we thought were so righteous about the way that they were going about it and not not really thinking in terms of, of politics and political power. So we, um, we pushed back. People were critiquing the People's Climate March for... Um, for getting advertisements in the subway. Well, that's like a corporate PR move is what the criticism was. Well, you know, are social movements these magical things that don't have to play by any of the rules that most people function by? People, uh, you know, the reasons corporations, when they have the money, um, advertise in subways is because it reaches people and, and they have the resources to show that it's very effective in 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 reaching folks. And so, uh, you know, we might not want to have to pay tons of money for advertising, but when you have done the organizing work that gets you the resources because you've gotten the alignment with people who have resources, uh, you use them and you build power. And so that's what we pushed on. Um, and part of that, that, what we pushed against, I don't remember if we used that phrase in the article, but you mentioned it before, is the story of the righteous few. And the story of the righteous few is um, basically that, that uh, you know, a lot of times we become disillusioned with something about the society, racism, capitalism, uh, patriarchy, and we reject that and we want to distance ourselves from it. And that's good. And we'll often have experiences of standing up to people, standing up against injustice, and it's our sometimes our strongest, bravest moments. It's moments that we are proud of and that we identify with. But what can happen is it can set in as an attachment to um, to marginality, to being fringe, mm-hmm. and um, and especially in the past forty years in the United States, as the left is fragmented and. Uh, the labor movement has declined, and um, you know we've experienced this loss in infrastructure, left infrastructure, and and organization and coordination, and and you know the skills of democracy. As I forget if it's Scotchpole or Putnam who uses that phrase, but um, these kind of skills of democracy have atrophied. Um, it's easy. It's been easy for radicals in the left to feel like they're inherently up against the culture, no matter what. And uh, the problem with the story of the righteous few is that when people start gaining traction, when they start gaining resources to be able to do something like put out subway ads, when they start getting successful, when um, well-to-do people or celebrities or mainstream people start to embrace parts of the agenda... Uh, the, the impulse is to be suspicious of that. So the same thing that happens like with your favorite indie band can happen with social justice movements as well? It's actually the same thing mm-hmm. in, in remarkable ways. And, and actually a lot of sociologists and anthropologists have written about this. So you look at Georg Simmel and uh, uh, David Harvey, the anthropologist at CUNY recently, or um, 
um, or Pierre Bourdieu, and they write about this dynamic of, uh, Pierre Bourdieu talks about it in terms of um, uh, different fields. Um, you can tell that there's a field because a field develops its own kind of capital, its own kind of social capital where um, that might be totally uh, unintelligible to people outside of the field. It's not just an analogy what you raised. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really the same social pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, in my opinion, having been an organizer for 20 years, having been as guilty of it as anyone, you know, the, the, the book, um, you know, sometimes it, it, it might seem like I'm like, you know, Oh, well, you know, let me tell you about social movements. I've been in it. I dove so far into subculture that, uh, uh, you know, I couldn't show my face where I came from. So tell me a little bit about those, um, those early years. Like you grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Is that right? Or yeah, I grew up in the County. Actually, I grew up, uh, on a farm in, uh, outside of a little town called Bird in Hand, and I grew up Mennonite. Um, you know, our life revolved heavily around the church. Um, uh, my parents were probably the liberal end of a very, very conservative community. And by liberal end, they were not open about any kind of politics. They were pretty socially conservative in a lot of ways. But um, I didn't get, um, I got some, I think I got some some values from them about um uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. My dad always would say, tell me, you're so privileged. And it's funny because later in life, I just assumed I was from the same class background as most people in the social movements I was part of. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I was from a much more working class background um, because my dad had had uh, lived a year uh, on a sail ship and had seen uh, places around the world and had seen, you know, third world poverty, global south poverty. And, you know, he was saying relative to that. And I, you know, so he, there was definitely a politics communicated despite mm. the conservative politics I was raised with. But anyway, I was raised with that. Um, you know, I think there were definitely some seeds in how my parents raised me that um, allowed for kind of a pretty strange, a pretty atypical break from that background of of rural conservative to become totally a radical um, because I remember when you first came here at the beginning of the session and we were talking about where you were from and I was just like, where did you come from? Like what? I, I didn't. And it seemed like you didn't really. I don't know if you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's weird. You know, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I, I, I have a hard time. I mean, I, I know when I was in high school that there was some racism and homophobia at my school and that had a very politicizing effect on me. I didn't know what politics really just was. like socially just like among yeah, kids the, yeah yeah and it was the combination of the racism which was per- perpetuated by people who i had been friends with in junior high against people who i was now friends with in high school and that kind of you know well that well one that could have been me easily i i mm. saw that the whole time that that uh i could have been the the perpetrator of this racism and and so that was an early question. How did I get on this other side where I was standing up for people um, and then being targeted myself? Um, and I don't I don't really know the answer to that. But that and the combination of how the administration at my school reacted and kind of turned a blind eye to it. I think that was the politicizing effect. And it was around the same time that I developed an interest in the global economy, 
really, I read the Bible. And that was, that was the most radicalizing thing. Uh, you know, I was raised with the Bible my whole life. I was given Bible verses to memorize. But then somewhere around eighth grade, freshman year, I started reading it for myself. And, uh, and wow, it, it's, a, it's full of, um, you know, economic justice is the major theme of the Bible. And given that it was such a major theme, especially in the Gospels, especially everything Jesus said, I was like, why haven't I been taught this? Why did this get such a backseat and this idea of this heaven and hell and individualistic salvation, which I hardly found evidence for anywhere in the text, mm-hmm. was the focal point. And so that raised kind of some cognitive dissonance for me. And that was part of the process. Too. So at this point, you're in high school. You're a bad student. Right? <laughs> well, I'm a good kid. I didn't. Uh-huh. I wasn't. I. You know, we we didn't obey rules, but we weren't. We weren't. We weren't uh-huh. doing bad things. We were, you know, involved in. Yeah, we were, we were good kids. But yeah, I was flunking out as yeah. a student. And so did you? And so you finished high school, but with a bad GPA. Yeah, I think it was and, a 1.6. I didn't know yeah. if you wanted to say it on record. Yeah, it might be the <laughs> lowest high school GPA of anyone who's ever gone to Berkeley in the PhD. So I, I don't know. There's no there's no record of that. And so and so abysmal. around around this time, so what are like the first forays into activism? What are the first steps like post high school or during high school? Mm-hmm. What are the kind of efforts you're starting to become involved with? So I had... Um, I was turned on to um, Mennonite Central Committee's headquarters were in Lancaster County, and they had a whole alternative resources library. And so uh, my friend Wesley, um, whose parents were a lot more political than I was, and he was much more intellectual than I was, and um, and um, very, very smart guy. So he kind of uh, introduced me to the space, and I started reading publications like The Catholic Worker, Multinational Monitor, um, a new internationalist. I, w- I took an interest in uh, the global economy in particular and U.S. imperialism. Started reading like economists like Susan George. So I was doing all this work while flunking out of school. Okay, too. yeah. Um, I just didn't care about playing the scholastic game. Um, and um, it, it's not advice I'm giving or anything. It's just <laughs> I, I didn't. And mm-hmm. um, and I think I didn't have some of the skill set yet to 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 do that and um so what was the question that i was on just early uh involvement in social movements and right so that led me to some interest i don't remember what the first protest i went to was but i know that i got involved in some of the um the work for uh supporting mumia abu jamal who's a death row inmate um uh and uh who who had all sorts of things wrong with his with his trial, and there's a great deal of evidence that um, there there should not have been a conviction, and um, and so I I got involved with that in Philly. I met people like in the Move organization. I mean, I met some real radicals, you know, and uh, and it was funny because I was curious then. I was like, you know, these fringe these sectarian like Marxist groups that sell their papers at the periphery of protest that other people organize i was like their wet dream because uh i would just be like oh tell me more mm-hmm. <laughs> i was very interested and yeah. so there'd, there'd be like people from all the different organizations talking to me so I, I remember going with a lot of curiosity um and that was in high school at some point and um then i left i left home after my junior year i went hitchhiking across the country and part of the reason i did that is because i felt that 
the ideas from the publications I had been reading, the ideas that had been germinating in me my junior year in particular, which was also my worst scholastic year, um, I felt I needed a break. I needed to make a break from the kind of doctrine and uh, the holding pattern I was in with the community I was from. I felt like it was it was very hard for me to be like, well, now I believe this, and for people to take it seriously and for me to to make a shift. And so I went hitchhiking around the country. I didn't know where I was going. I brought $200 and spent the summer doing that. And um, uh, and that that was a big experience for me. I, I didn't, I wasn't reading a lot more. I wasn't, I was finding kind of my strength and my um, resolve to, um, to, you know, at that point, how I thought about it was to commit my life to social justice. Um, it sounds so that sounds self-righteous, but that's where I was coming from. And, um, and so I went back my senior year, my parents last minute sanctioned the trip in exchange for me. Uh, they, they agreed to not report me as a runaway and I agreed to finish high school. So, um, that was a hard year carrying a hall pass to use the restroom after you've had total freedom, right? Slept out under the stars for a summer is, is hard to stomach. But then I really started getting that, that when I got back, something had changed. I knew it. Everybody around me knew it. And, uh, it was that, um, it was that year that I gave a chapel at my, I went to a Mennonite school and I gave a chapel in the morning and it was half of it was scripture. Half of it was about the global economy. A bunch of people walked out. Regular class really didn't happen that day. We just talked about the content because it was a shelter, it was a sheltered environment and, that it was it was a bombshell and um and it's funny because some of these themes came up very early then like the story of the righteous few you know I coined that because I I lived it in some ways I thought that you know the 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 story I knew of righteousness was that it ends uh on a cross on Golgotha you know that you stand up for what's right and you end up stoned like Stephen or you know there are there you know, the Mennonites in particular have this big book called The Martyr's Mirror, which is just full of these people who were killed for their faith. Mm. And so that's kind of how I saw the story ending. And, you know, and there is an element of truth to that in social justice movements, that people do suffer for standing up. Um, but I expected that reaction. What I didn't expect was a whole bunch of people when I gave the chapel to be like, I want to know more. What can we do? Mm. And for a campaign to launch out of it, where we examined, we, it was an educational campaign, where mm -hmm. we examined the global economy and did different uh, service projects and had discussion groups together. I didn't expect that. And so that was a transformative moment for me where um, I, I realized like, oh, right, we have to, we have to look for the openings, not get attached to being marginal and rejected mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so that so now you're you know it's kind of catching steam and you're building a coalition among your uh mennonite you know front and peers and then, then now you're coming into your 20s and what sorts of trouble are you getting into oh now? yeah so i i through the uh through the mumia stuff i met um a bunch of socialists in philadelphia 
um, and a group called the Cuba Support Coalition. And I ended up going to Cuba the summer after I graduated. And, um, and there I met Jeremy Scahill and uh, we became good friends. This was before he was a reporter. He was living at uh, Jonah House community at the time in Baltimore. And then he moved to New York, uh, to the New York Catholic Worker soon after that. I had known about the Catholic Worker. I'd been reading the paper, um, the one out of New York, um, for about two years at that point. And um, he and um, another friend, Carmen Trotta, started coming down to Lancaster and started coaching me kind of in this campaign that I started organizing against um, Walmart. They were coming to Lancaster County for the first time. And I started going up to New York and going to some protests. And um, and so that, that happened. And it got lonely in Lancaster. And I felt like I needed mentors too like i felt like i didn't have mentors in terms of political organizing and i was making it up from scratch i was getting some mentors from jeremy mentorship from jeremy and carmen but i wanted something more in depth and 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 um and to feel like i was with people that i didn't have to organize to come to things that i was with people who wanted to be there mm-hmm. and so they recommended that i move into the catholic worker in washington dc and i did that um, met some fantastic people, made some lifelong friends, and I, I lived for two years in the Catholic Worker Movement, um, first in D.C., then in Philly, and then a farm in Iowa. And, you know, once you dive in, one thing leads yeah. to another. I got involved with Earth First. I got involved with the American Indian Movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved with um, a lot of different issues, from U.S. militarism to community issues, um, you know, local dump type of stuff, like city what does a day in one of these projects look like? And I know it could probably vary, but I'm just trying to get a grasp of like, you know, one, what what are you doing all day? And then also like, how are you paying for your needs mm-hmm. in the meantime? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a, there's a great amount of variety. And for the first several years, I was not in any kind of a staff position. I was living in voluntary poverty. Um, the Catholic worker has a, has a, um, whole philosophy of that, that of living in voluntary poverty. So the Catholic worker, they serve the poor and then they challenge the, um, the, uh, power holders, the structures that create poverty. And that's kind of the dual mission. And part of serving the poor is living with the poor. And, um, and it wasn't miserable. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't miserable at all. And you know, this question of what is wealth comes out and not, not to laud poverty at all. Um, that that's not at all where I'm coming from, but as an organizer, being willing to live very frugally gave me an incredible amount of freedom. Um, it gave me an incredible amount of freedom. All these concerns that I saw more kind of middle-class folks wrestling with like, how am I going to find a job? How am I going to do all this? I didn't have college debt because I didn't go to college. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is like a path I would recommend. I, I think that we should have free education. I think that, you know, that, uh, but for me personally, I was very freed up by living in an intentional community for years, by working on campaigns where, you know, food and basic sustenance was part of it. Um, where lodging was part of it, but where there was really no income. And then I learned some skills on the side. I became an unlicensed electrician and did a job here and there. So I would do 
I, I worked at a restaurant for a couple of years, mm-hmm. so I worked. Um, but I usually worked as little as possible so that I could work. I was very involved in social movements, so I, I would try to work 20 hours a week mm-hmm. for paid work and live on that. Um, and uh, so that's what it looked like for years. And then, you know, after a while, I had built up a skill set that it didn't matter anymore that I hadn't gone to college. There were organizations that were interested in, in bringing me on board. Um, so, you know, I, I worked for School of the Americas Watch for a couple of years as their communications director. And um, then I co-founded and then eventually directed the Lancaster Coalition for Peace and Justice and went to work for the War Resisters League. And then I worked for Move On. Um, so these are some of the staff roles I, I played. And then uh, I also started Beyond the Choir, which is just kind of my own vehicle for training. And so I would, um, you know, work with groups and some groups I really wanted to work with supported their work and they didn't have money and I would do that and other groups did and could charge some money or find a funder who thought the the work was important. So, you know, it was, it was, it was a scrappy existence through my twenties. Um, and then I was able to make a, a decent living, um, after that and then quit to go to school <laughs> and live once again, very frugally. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, your work with Iraq veterans against the war. It seems like in the timeline that sticks out, it seems like an important like point along your career. Sure. I've always been a supporter. I've never been on staff okay. for Iraq veterans against the war. So, um, Iraq veterans against the war is a, a group that I, um, believe strongly in. And, um, I, I worked a lot of my political work during the Bush years, especially, most of my political work was in on foreign policy and, you know, uh, challenging foreign policy and trying to end uh, both the Iraq and Afghanistan war, trying to close Guantanamo. And in that, in that, uh, and on that national stage and international stage, um, I I think that the voices of uh, U.S. veterans, military families, and soldiers is is very important. And is very strategic. There are other voices that are important too. Um, voices of direct victims of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, also very important. But um, strategically um, and morally, I I thought that it was important to um, to lift up those voices. So um, you know, when I worked for Lancaster Coalition for Peace and Justice, um, I did some outreach to Iraq veterans against the war. Had some relationship. We had some speakers come, things like that, um, and um, I would always go out of my way to um, to talk with um, and approach, and sometimes track down military families and, um, um, and including people who lost um, who lost loved ones in the war in Lancaster County when we were there. And we built those relationships, and we um, you know uh, you know made the space for those folks' voices to be front and center. So then I went to work for the War Resisters League in 2007, and um, support, direct support for Iraq veterans against the war became a major part of my job description. Mm-hmm. And um, so that involved a lot of things. That involved uh, training other civilians, other non-military folks, to play support roles um, to help um, you know, provide 
making photocopies, training all these different things and, and, and the right orientation for that work. Because when you're working with a particular community that's been through an experience, especially veterans who a lot of folks are struggling with trauma and, um, and all sorts of issues, um, you know, you can't just waltz in. You've got to, you've got to have the right demeanor and the right orientation. And so some of what I've done would be that kind of work, you know, some with our base of War Resisters League. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, some, and then whatever IBAW would ask me to do. So sometimes I've facilitated their board meetings. Um, Sometimes I've um, given them strategy trainings um, or supported folks in, in outreach, um, like in North Carolina, uh, Jason Hurd and I kind of wove across the state, um, you know, meeting with both allies and um, uh, potential recruits to Iraq Veterans Against the War. Um, you know, it's 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 a meaningful part of the work. And, uh, you know, I'm one of many, many people who have supported that organization, but it's been an important thing uh, to, to, to me to... Um, to, to do that. So that, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I talk about them also quite a bit as, um, movements need to think about what we're saying, how we're communicating values, how we're framing a, we, I talk about framing the, we, who is part of the, we, when we're talking about, when we're, when we're, when we're talking about our issues and, you know, who is the messenger, the messenger matters. Um, and, um, you know, for, um, better or for worse in American society, um, veterans have an, and, and military folks have an incredible amount of, uh, you know, uh, legitimacy, credibility. And, um, you know, Iraq Veterans Against the War is a group of veterans that decided, you know, let's, let's lean into that. Let's, mm-hmm. um, let's take responsibility for that. Yeah. And then um, from there, then sort of it seems like the last, the later two, the most recent two movements that you've had a real involvement where one was the Bradley Manning Support Network, also now, I guess now the Chelsea Chelsea Manning Manning Support Network, and then Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Homes or Mm -hmm. Occupy Our Homes. Um, and were you doing a lot of sort of communications and staff training and stuff like that for them as well? Yeah. Um, wait, what did you say before Occupy Wall Street? Oh, Chelsea right, so, Manning. Yeah. So the, the Chelsea Manning campaign, um, I was, you know, working directly for a period of, it was a little more than half a year, um, you know, at one point in the campaign. So other people have done that work as well. Um, that was, um, for the, at the time, Bradley Manning support network, now the Chelsea Manning support network. Um, that was in 2011. So that was, you know, that, that was that was PR. I was working mm-hmm. with, uh, with, uh, one other person. Um, uh, basically they hired beyond the choir and, um, you know, so we helped to organize press conferences, help to, um, you know, talk strategically about the message. It, it was, it was complicated, um, because it was a support network. It wasn't like we were working directly for Chelsea Manning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we were an autonomous project working in support of Chelsea Manning. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that poses some, some, some tricky issues, but I think we, we did our best with that, but that was, that was mostly PR. And that's, mm-hmm. um, one of the things I sometimes get pigeonholed into because I work with communications and narrative strategy and people often pigeonhole that into PR. And I 
always try to push back um, that messaging and communication isn't just PR. It's it's everything. It's our uh, it's how we talk with each other. It's how we get volunteers motivated. It's uh, you know it, it's it's got to be kind of woven into the fabric or baked into the cake or whatever the expression is. Um, so with Occupy Wall Street, I did a lot of different things. I did work on the P. I did once again get kind of pigeonholed into the PR working group for my first six weeks there. That's almost all that I did. Um, and so that was prepping people for interviews, um, putting out press releases, highlighting different activities that were happening, different marches that were happening, um, uh, you know, thinking through messaging. There was a whole crew of us. There was a, it was, you know, the Occupy Wall Street had a working group structure. And um, so I was um, kind of part of the core of the PR working group. And then I got involved with other working groups too, like the movement building working group. Um, and then just, there were a lot of things that happened outside of working groups at Occupy Wall Street too. There was, you know, negotiating with city officials. There was um, calling um, allies, community organizations and unions and ad national advocacy organizations and um, trying to figure out how they could get their members to push back against, you know, Mayor Bloomberg when he tried to evict us, for example. Um, you know, there, it was constant. It was a whole mess of activities and we didn't sleep much you know it was a a whirlwind when you come out of berkeley with a shiny phd perhaps um what do you plan to kind of dive into the same sort of roles that you've been taking with these groups or do you does this kind of mark a shift do you not want to be ar arrested anymore like what like what does it <laughs> I mean i never want to be arrested yeah right? you know if I can help being arrested, I, I will usually try to avoid it. Although there are times when I think that uh, risking arrest is important. I, I managed to not get arrested during Occupy Wall Street, but to risk it, um, I've gotten arrested many other times. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of role, you know, I'm very open, I'm very open about roles. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've worked for two decades pretty much full-time in social movements, even in grad school. And I've worked in staff roles or not staff roles. And even when I was in staff roles, I've always been doing some volunteer work. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to relate to social movements, and I'm open about it. Um, I do really like teaching and training. I like, um, like longer-term partnerships longer-term relationships, like the relationship that I've had with Iraq Veterans Against the War, where, um, you know, it's not just a one-off, here's a bunch of skills, I don't know your context, I don't have any way of measuring whether this stuff is helpful. Um, I I don't like doing that kind of stuff as, as much. I do some of it, I do some one-off, like, here's a group, here's a training, boom. Mm -hmm. I like the longer-term stuff, mm -hmm. longer-term relationships. Um, so I'm open. Um, I also like teaching and I like reading geeky theory. And so, uh, you know, right now I'm on track to hopefully become a professor, but we'll see what the job market's like. We'll see what, what it's all like. I, in one way or another, I will be deeply involved in political work. That's kind of my uh, calling, if you will. Well, 
Thanks for uh, talking to me today. And it's been a pleasure to have you here for the last four weeks, uh, both for uh, talking about social movements and also for playing ping pong and uh, <laughs> swimming in impromptu hot tubs. So uh, I hope that you'll uh, we'll, you'll come back again. Yeah, thanks. It's been amazing being here. Uh, the Blue Mountain Center is a fantastic place, and it's been really, really uh, uh, great. I, I did a residency here two years ago where I started writing the book and right now I'm, I'm really wrapping up the, the, the draft. I know there'll be revisions, but, um, it's been nice to kind of finish the, the draft at least of what I started here. Thanks. Sir. Thank you. <laughs> Jonathan Smucker for uh, coming into the podcast studio. Um, thank you to Ben and Harriet as always. Thank you to my co-host Zohar. And uh, this is Luke saying uh, we'll see you soon. Bye.